Friends, in addition to all the other fun things that are happening today, today is also Graduation Sunday, the day that we celebrate our graduates, and we will do that a little bit later in the service. We are lucky to have Ava as our liturgist this morning, as she is a college graduate that we are celebrating. And so the text for today is one that is always valuable. It may be a familiar one to us all, comes up frequently, but it's also a particularly good one to ground us in our faith in any moment, and particularly moments of transition and change, to help us consider who we are and how we live as people of faith in the new season before us. And so we turn today to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Friends, at what point do you think that the man robbed of even his clothes first tried to fend off the help of the Samaritan? Because I find it hard to imagine that he didn't, at, not at least once, at some point. And I mean, maybe it was at the very beginning when the Samaritan first stopped. The man may have waved him off from the ditch, or at least tried, saying, Oh no, don't worry about me. I'm fine down here. I'm just resting. I'll be on my way soon. Or could it have been when the bandages came out of the travel bags and the man in the ditch might have said, oh, that's very kind of you, thank you. If you just leave the bandages there by the road, I'll find the strength to crawl up there and wrap myself up in a minute. I don't want to be a bother. Or maybe it could have happened when they were on their way traveling and the Samaritan insisted that this man ride the donkey. And he might have said, oh, thank you, but no thank you. I shouldn't impose like that. I'm sure my stumbling will even out after just a few miles, it will be good for me. Or maybe it could have happened when they got to the inn and the man might have protested, oh, you shouldn't have, this is too much, I'm feeling better now. Really, I can just rest here in the grass on the side of the road. The fresh air would be good for me. Or maybe it would have happened when the bill came and he might have exclaimed, wait a minute, two days of wages and anything else I might need, that's too much. I'll pay you back. First thing, no, I'll go start washing dishes in the back right now to cover my stay. You don't have to worry about it. I will be fine. And if not then, do you think that maybe after the story ended, we might still have found the man sitting in an inn's room that he didn't pay for, saying to himself, I don't know why that stranger did so much for me. I would have been fine. I would have been just fine on my own. It can be hard. To accept help, especially without anything that we can do in return. I got in a fight with my neighbors this last winter, though they have no idea. It all started after the first snowfall of the year when I awoke to a blanket of crisp, clear, white snow covering the whole earth except for my sidewalk and my neighbor's sidewalk. My neighbors had so thoughtfully continued on as they were clearing their own walk to clear the snow off of our whole sidewalk. It was this kind, thoughtful gesture, and I thanked them the next time I saw them, and I thought that was it. I don't much like clearing snow, you should understand. It's usually too cold to do it. The snowblower is much too heavy and much too loud, and so I dally and I delay every time I need to do it all over again. Or at least I did before this last winter, because the neighbors had the audacity, after cleaning our sidewalk off of snow once, to do it again with the second snowfall. And that was too much, too kind, and we were fine. Thank you very much. I can clear my own sidewalk. So I tried to beat them 
with the third snowfall, and I didn't. They got to it before I could get to it, and I could tell I was losing this fight. But I couldn't just keep accepting their kindness, could I? I had to help them. I had to plow my walk and their walk next time, because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to help people. I had to help them, right? Isn't that how it works? Isn't that what faith teaches? A lawyer approaches Jesus with a question one day. The text tells us it's to test Jesus, but it doesn't really tell us what that means. Often we assume it means he's trying to trap Jesus in some sort of verbal coup to take Jesus and prove that he doesn't have what he thinks everyone thinks that he has. But as it happens, he and Jesus engage in a good amount of back and forth without any indication of polemic or animosity or verbal repartee. It might be a test to see what Jesus had to say and if it's something worth saying. For this man is a lawyer, and this, in this context, that means he studies the law, and the law in this context means the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And so he is a well-learned man of faith. And so his testing, his testing might well be about whether Jesus knows the law just as well, or perhaps even better, whether this lawyer has something to learn from an itinerant rabbi. And so he tests Jesus and asks a question. And it's a good one. A fundamental question, but difficult in its simplicity. A question we might all ask and want to have answered. He says to Jesus, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus responds with another question, but perhaps the right question, combining two different questions. Jesus asks him, well, what is written in the text, and how is it you understand it. For Jesus knows that the text is both the words on the page and how it is that we interpret it, that the text is written for us and yet also needs faithful, thoughtful, compassionate interpretation. And so he turns the question back around to the lawyer, and the lawyer proves that he has studied the law. And in this gospel, the lawyer gives us the answer that Jesus gives us in other gospels, blending two Old Testament verses together and says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus agrees, says he has answered well and rightly. And so the lawyer asks another question. And Luke, as he writes this gospel, tells us that the lawyer wants to prove that he is right, which sounds like a negative thing, like we've gone to now truly testing Jesus, but the language here implies justification. And justification, at least in the theological sense, is a very positive thing. To be justified before God is to be right before God, to belong in God's family, to show up as good and righteous. We want to be justified, and so the lawyer asks the question of Jesus, wanting to be justified. It is maybe a more honest question than the first, one that comes from that place of fear that wonders if we're okay and what we need to do to be okay. What must be done in order to prove that he is all right before God? 
And I mean, we know what we have to do, right? Which is love, which means help other people. But how much and who exactly? And so the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. It's a familiar parable to many of us. Perhaps there's a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a dangerous stretch of road where thieves and bandits are likely to be hiding, and they are. This man who is traveling encounters such a group and is robbed of everything he has down to his clothes. He is beaten within an inch of his life, and then he's left for dead in a ditch on the side of the road. And it just so happens that there's a priest coming down the road who sees the man and seeing him crosses over to the other side of the road and continues on his way. But in the same way, there's a Levite right after him, another Jewish religious leader who is coming down the road and sees the man. And seeing him, this Levite crosses over to the other side and continues on his way. And then there's a Samaritan. A Samaritan who's on a journey, passing by the same place, who sees the same man and noticing that this man is left for dead, feels compassion for him. He bandages his wounds, places him on a donkey, takes him to an inn, takes care of him, and pays for him to stay while he heals and makes a full recovery. And Jesus asked the lawyer, what do you think? Which of the three was a neighbor to the man? And the lawyer responds that it wasn't the priest and it wasn't the Levite, but it was the one who showed mercy without mentioning that Jesus had the audacity to make that character a Samaritan. But that's an important and uncomfortable detail that this third traveler was a Samaritan, perhaps had to be a Samaritan. There was a long-held animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, and Jesus himself had experienced this firsthand just a chapter earlier in the Gospel. Luke writes there one chapter before this story that Jesus has sent messengers ahead of him to make arrangements for him to stay in a Samaritan village on his way to Jerusalem. But when the Samaritans in that village hear that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, they understand who he is, that he is a faithful Jew, and so they refuse to offer him any hospitality. And feeling slighted, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, ask Jesus, if he wants them to call down fire from heaven to destroy this village and its inhabitants. And Jesus says no. And then a chapter later, he tells a story to a curious lawyer about a Samaritan whose distinguishing characteristic is an abundant and overwhelming hospitality. And Jesus says to the lawyer, go and do likewise. Usually, we consider this to mean that we should root our tendencies to be like the priest and our Levite. We should root out our tendencies. Let's not get this backwards. We should root out all of those tendencies we have to be like the priest or the Levite, and we should strive to be like the Samaritan instead. Because after all, the story is called the Good Samaritan. After all, helping people is pretty central to the Christian faith. But when Jesus could have given the lawyer a simple answer. He told a story instead, and parables are rarely, or perhaps never, simple. 
The acclaimed author, Tehu Cole, once wrote, I traffic in subtleties, and my goal in writing a novel is to leave the reader not knowing what to think. Parables are similar, intended to leave the listener a little confused and puzzled, but with the tools to create meaning beyond the confines of a single interpretation. The story should extend beyond the elementary understanding that we should help one another, for we should, but there may be more. In 1968, on the night before he was assassinated, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached this parable to a crowd that had gathered in Memphis, Tennessee, where the city's sanitation workers were on strike. King's staff and his closest aides had all objected to him being there, suggesting that he had more important work to attend to and more important places to be. Memphis was not a very strategic city, and garbage men weren't very compelling victims. King had won a Nobel Peace Prize, and they were in the midst of planning a march on Washington for economic justice. But King still went because he had heard about the treatment of the mostly black sanitation workers who served the city collecting trash every day. He went because he heard how the residents had objected to seeing the sanitation workers eat lunch outside and how they were instructed then to eat in the truck instead. He went because the cab of the truck couldn't fit a crew of four, and so one rainy afternoon a few weeks earlier, two men had crawled into the compactor on the back of the truck to eat their sandwiches for lunch and were killed when something shorted in the electrical system and the trash compactor suddenly engaged. He went because the workers were on strike begging to be noticed and to be heard, many of them wearing signs that simply said, I am a man. King went, and with storms raging outside that night, Punctuating his points with claps of thunder, he told this story of the Good Samaritan and the importance of noticing the man dying by the side of the road and coming to his aid. If I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, King asked of his audience, what will happen to them? His life was lived in many ways as a response to this reading of the parable. Now, the story of the Good Samaritan was a favorite of King's, as it is for so many preachers. And so he used it often, and sometimes he told it differently. Sometimes the person in the ditch wasn't the sanitation worker, or the black man, or the poor woman, or the immigrant. Sometimes King peered down from the road, and America looked back up at him from the ditch. We don't want to be the ones in the ditch. We'd much rather be helped, be helpers then be helped. But there's something valuable we can draw from the parable when we think about it this way. As King described it, America and the American church had long proclaimed the importance of moral living and of a just society, but fallen to the wayside, silent and stripped of its cherished ideals, waiting in need of rescue. We might just need a Samaritan. And long before Martin Luther King Jr. arrived on the scene, Inviting us down the road and into the ditch, Augustine did the same thing in the third century. There is something to be gained when we place ourselves there in the dirt, and we who have so much 
So much money, but also privilege and time, confidence, assurance, independence, and self-reliance. We who think we have enough to help everyone else might desperately need a visit from a Samaritan who knows what it looks like and feels like to be an outsider, overlooked and forgotten. We who only want to help might need to be helped to learn how to heal and how to empower and how to suffer and how to walk alongside and offer the stranger a ride on a donkey. We might ask, what will happen if we don't stop to help? But we might also ask if we are willing to be rescued. The most redemptive work might come when those unlike us help us just the same. When we listen to those who have suffered under racism and violence, the poor and the impoverished, those who have been pushed aside by mental health struggles, those who have never fit into this world that we so comfortably move in, that we might learn how to heal ourselves and the world we live in. We might need the Samaritan. We might need the Samaritan to help us remember that the eternal life the lawyer asked about is found somewhere in the mix between helping others and being helped. After all, what else does our faith boil down to but lying half dead alongside a busy road awaiting a salvation we could not fashion for ourselves and hoping for a grace we could not earn. And if that's where it all boils down to in the end, it sure wouldn't hurt to practice along the way. I did once, eventually, get to clear our sidewalk before our neighbors did, and I spitefully cleared theirs as well, as if it was the final word in an argument I knew was only ever being debated by me and in me, as I insisted that I was fine, absolutely fine, and I should be out helping and surely not being helped. But my neighbors knew better. Thank God. What do you think, Jesus asked? Is faith all about what we can do for others, or is there space to find ourselves in the ditch, with nothing to offer but fully deserving of help and grace and love? For our neighbors might know better than we know ourselves. Thanks be to God. Friends, I invite you to stand as you are comfortable this morning as we sing 